Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Would you turn with me to John chapter 9? I'm going to start at verse 8. Let me, let's, Holy Spirit, would you open our ears and eyes? We want to truly hear from you. We want to truly see the things of God. And we bring you hearts full of faith. And we would walk in obedience. We would walk and listen, Lord. You, you build us up. You feed our soul. And I pray for the grace to let you speak. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to follow you. We want to listen to you. We want to love you. And as you take our hearts and, and give our love to our Father, and, and, and you, you teach us to love him. So come now and do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jesus has, um, has been speaking in the temple area, and he has just said something really, really uh, outrageous or wonderful. If it's true, it's wonderful. If it's false, it's simply terrible blasphemy. He has said to a group of religious leaders and a a large crowd, he has said, he said, uh, before Abraham was, what? I am, yeah. He just told them that he is older than a man who died 20 centuries before. Now, that's either insanity or it is that he is declaring himself to be the divine son of God who's come from heaven, which is what is happening. He's saying, I didn't start in, in my mother's womb. I, st- I came from heaven. I am from eternity. And so he's, 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 he's saying that. Well, some, some believed. I mean, the power of, and evidence of the Lord on him is so dramatic. Some of these top religious leaders believe but others were picking up stones to throw at him and, and accuse him of blasphemy. So as, as that begins to happen, I think the crowd enveloped him and escorted him out. And you've got this, this, this great God. So they're escorting him out. And as he goes out of the temple, uh, the larger temple area, uh, I would have kept going if I were him and had people who were going to try to stone me. I would keep going and probably would have ended up somewhere in Beersheba. Uh, <laughs> But not him. He makes it just probably outside the temple because that's where the beggars really gathered. And he sees a beggar blind from birth and stops and looks at him. When he does, the disciples gather. They kind of like begin to look at whoever he's looking at. And they apparently know this fellow or what his condition is evident. And they say, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents? In their minds, someone born blind, that is a judgment. It's, an, it's, it's a judgment on sin from God. God has sent that blindness to this child. And so in their minds, either the child sinned in the womb. We had a discussion about how on earth can that happen. But you could argue from certain things. And, you know, Jacob and Esau, that kind of deal. Uh, pretty hard to do, though, to blame a child in the womb. Uh, but some people can do it. Uh, and so we had that. And then, then the other alternative was, is this a judgment that's fallen on the child because of a, the parent's sin? God is judging the parents and hurting their child because of what they did wrong. Again, that's a nasty theology, but it was one they had in their, uh, in their culture. And so they're asking this, and Jesus' answer is neither the parents nor he. But then he made this statement. He said, but so that the works of God in him. Say, that, say the works of God in him. Yeah. In other words, what God is at work doing in him may be manifested. We must work the works of, of, of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to do something now to show forth because God has been powerfully at work in this man. Um, that is the way I understand that passage. The other alternative understanding is that God blinded the boy in the womb so that when he, later on, when Jesus came by, you could heal him. I don't believe it says that. And I had a number of you from LMI, our Life Ministry Institute, who had Greek. You checked me on that. And, and I found I was right. <laughs> ah, in fact, I was even righter than I knew. Uh, which, which can happen. Um, so what I'm doing is not misleading you. It says that the works of God in him 
might be, might be shown forth. The light might shine on them. I'm stopping here and I'm going to pray for this guy. You're going to see today what Jesus knew by this, in the Spirit. You're going to see a man respond to his miracle with tremendous loyalty. Something fierce happens inside this man. Let's, let's go to the word. I'll start at verse 8. I'm going to just take you right down to verse 38. Hang on. Here we go. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man, uh, brought to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. And now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and he opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking again uh, how he received his sight, and he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, the man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind. And I'll explain who, when it says the Jews. This is not a generic term. This is a term for the, for the top leadership, uh, religious leadership. They didn't believe it when he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. They questioned them, saying, is this your son who, do you, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Can you hear somebody go thump under the bus? <laughs> his, <laughs> his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man's a sinner. And then he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Did you want to be his disciples too, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love it? He's, yeah, he's feisty. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. This, were, this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. Do you hear their religious uh, theology coming out? And are you teaching us? And their pride. They put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he, and, he, and he said, why don't you read with me? Lord, I believe. And go on. And he worshiped him. What you're seeing in that man is, is more than faith. Lots of people have momentary belief. They'll believe, and, 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 and it has whatever effect it has. But this man, you're seeing not only faith. In fact, you're seeing a quality before faith. If you'll notice, he doesn't really discover who Jesus is until the end. Did you see that? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Me. Ah, that's his moment. What you're seeing in him is loyalty. It's not easy to define loyalty. Try it. It's not easy to explain why some people are loyal and some are not. In fact, that's one of the most puzzling aspects about loyalty. Sometimes it's, to those, it's those to whom we give the most who abandon us the quickest. People we had every right to expect would be loyal to us weren't. 
But then there are those who turn out to be loyal from whom we would never have anticipated such a gift. Loyalty seems to rise up from some place deep inside a person. And I doubt that most people could explain why they were loyal if asked. Something inside the heart decides to stay, to stand, to love, to protect, regardless of the cost. Loyalty isn't a quality that can stand alone. It requires courage, it requires love, and it requires humility. Without courage, it won't last. Without love, it won't start. And without humility, it would never find anyone worthy of such a commitment. It's thankfulness at a very deep level. We become so thankful to a person, or a family, or a community, or a nation, that a strong bond is formed, a silent vow is taken. We decide that we are one with that person, or family, or community, or nation. That's why loyalty is the key virtue in marriage. Without it, love can't exist. Love, real love, doesn't come first. Loyalty does. Let me stop there. In our culture, we think love comes first, don't we? Not real love. Usually what we're talking about is romance, and you know, all of that kind of exhilaration and all. That's fine. It's nothing wrong with it. I think God gave us hormones. Um, but real love is something much more than that. It is not attraction. Real love is a deep loyalty. Here's the wonder. Here's what people don't get. Our culture sure doesn't get it. Love, true love, exists in the matrix, in the, in the, in the womb, you might say, of commitment. It's when you... What do we have for a, for a wedding? A, a, a real wedding isn't when you're skydiving or scuba diving. A real wedding is when you... St- <laughs> Those are people who don't get it. They're just trying to give some sort of meaning to their marriage because they don't understand what it's about. It's a covenant where two people stand here in front of a spiritual family who bear witness to their vow. And in that, in before them and before the Lord, they vow to one another to love each other. For better or for worse, richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. In other words, regardless of what happens, I am committed to you. I will be loyal to you. Therefore, you can open your heart to me. You can be real with me. I can see your weak points and your bad points as well as your good points. And I will still love you. In that, it's that environment in which real love grows. The other thing, as long as I'm attracted, as long as you make me happy, as long as you meet my needs, that's not love, that's slavery. It's a gross exploitation of each other. And that's what the world is calling, calling uh, um, uh, well, never mind, marriage. So anyway, I want you to see this. Relationship happens in the, in the environment of loyalty. In the Bible... God compares his relationship with us to a marriage and disloyalty to him as adultery. Above all else, he asks us to be loyal to him, just as he has been loyal to us. We are to have no other gods before him. It's heartbreaking to watch when people come to God, receive his help, and then dispose of him when they feel they no longer need him. Staying loyal requires many decisions, not one. Because there is something in this world that hates loyalty. It repeatedly attacks it wherever it finds it. But to those who resist those attacks, to those who choose to stay, to stand, to love, to protect, it provides the foundation upon which true, lasting relationship can be built. In the passage we'll study today, we'll see loyalty rise up in a man who encountered Jesus. What happened next is one of the most amazing moments in the Bible. This is where after Jesus encounters this man, after Jesus has this discussion, he's now going to give this man sight. Jesus spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and dust. And then he smeared the clay on the man's eyes. For obvious reasons, there has been much speculation about this. Some suggest the ancients believed saliva, had healing properties. 
That's powerful stuff. But there is mostly silence about why he made clay. Yet what that act symbolized was breathtaking. Jesus was revealing that he was the one who made Adam's eyes. He was the one who formed Adam out of clay. In effect, he smeared clay over the man's unformed eyes. As he did it, he was saying, this is how I made Adam's eyes. In other words, he wasn't healing eyes, he was creating them. Do you see this? There is no other mention of clay. I mean, there are a couple of other places where he actually used saliva. Uh, and I, that's another discussion. But in this case, he made clay. And it just says clay over and over again through here. That's the point of, this, of, the, of what John's telling us. He made clay. Here's a man. He, we don't, you don't heal these eyes. They never worked. There's something fundamentally deeply wrong with them. They, there, aren't, there aren't eyes there. These aren't working eyes. You don't heal them. You, and so he takes and he makes clay out of that which comes forth from him. In him is life. See, he's God. He's, a, he's divine. In him is life. In, in you is, is life because he abides in you. But it doesn't come from you. You and I don't have that life in us. We survive on his. But in him is life. So he spits and he takes and makes this clay. And then he puts this on the eyes. And the, this, the imagery is huge. He's just saying, this is how I made Adam's eyes. He created his eyes. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, and then he, te- then he tells the man to go wash. By the, that act, Jesus revealed two truths. First, he proclaimed his divinity as God's son. He was the one who created Adam and Eve. The father ordains all things. The son is the one who carries. He's the agent who carries forth the work of the father. He's the word because he's the one through whom the father speaks to us and communicates with us. But the second, he demonstrated God's perfect will for that man. Though he had been born blind, God's will for him was not blindness. But sight, he had suffered. He's, his suffering had nothing to do with punishment for sin. You cannot look at the fact that somebody's ill, something's happened, and say, ah, sin must have happened. The Bible is trying to teach us that all over and over again. Jesus instructed the man to go to the pool of Siloam and wash the clay from his eyes. The archaeological remains of that pool have been found. It was a large reservoir located about a quarter of a mile south of the temple. It was fed by the Gihon Spring through which an ancient conduit carved through, through, through an ancient conduit carved through the rock. Nehemiah mentioned it twice. He called it the king's pool, Nehemiah 2, and the pool of Shelah in Nehemiah 3. Isaiah spoke of the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Do you remember that passage? It's a beautiful one. The name is based on a Hebrew word meaning to send away. It was used when someone was sent on a mission Or as a representative. It was used when God sent prophets to warn Israel. All of those passages use that word. When Jesus sent the man to to those waters to wash. John notes that the pool's name means sent. The man, the blind man was being sent on a mission. To the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Which represent the help that God sends to us. I'm going to retell that story. Just, just, I want you to just feel the impact. What I want you to see is that the man has had a profound gift from God. My belief is that so have you. He's done things in our lives too. I want you to see. But this man's had a profound miracle. And then I want you to see the forces that want to stamp that out. They want them, him to renounce the one who did this for him. They want him to be disloyal. His neighbors and those who knew him as a beggar were divided. Some did not believe a miracle had occurred. Apparently, they suspected fraud. They said this person who could see was someone who merely looked like the beggar. I guess they're thinking he's playing a game on them. To which the man kept saying, it's me, it's me. Others recognized him and realized that a miracle must have happened. Everyone asked how, and he replied that a man named Jesus made clay, put it on his eyes, and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash. He did what he was instructed to do and came back seeing. They then asked where Jesus was, but he didn't know. Apparently, they were troubled 
by the thought that Jesus had made clay and performed a miracle on the Sabbath. So they led him to the Pharisees for questioning. They, they would let the religious scholars, who were more knowledgeable in these matters, determine whether or not Jesus had violated a commandment. If you knew somebody, maybe you'd grown up next door, and this guy's probably, what, who knows? 30 years old? 40? Who knows how old is he? But, he, but he's, a, he's a man. I mean, this, is, this guy's been a beggar for a long time. And you know him, and then you, you look at him, and the guy is perfectly seeing, and your interest is, he made clay? It's, it's the Sabbath. Do you see what religion does to people? It just makes them nuts. I'm serious. Beware of religion. Beware of this stuff. We just, we just heap rules on top of you. You give us a minute and we just get, we, we, what it, it's bondage, it's control. It's a control thing where you, you just put people into this kind of thing. So the whole discussion is he made clay on the Sabbath. That kind of culture is alive today. Uh, that kind of culture is, is absolutely still alive today. And I, I won't go into it. I don't want to put anybody, embarrass anybody. I'm just telling you, this kind of thing is still at work. The Pharisees begin by asking the man the same question the neighbors had asked. How was he able to see? He answered, he put clay on my eyes, I washed and I see. That's the literal way, I love it. Again, as it had happened to the neighbors, these scholars were divided. Some, but not all, decided the miracle could not be from God because in their judgment, Jesus had violated the command to rest on the Sabbath. Some did believe. Listen, I mean, you're, this is separating, it's separating the Pharisaical scholars, it's separating the neighbors, everybody's getting kind of divided. You either believe it or you don't believe it. You either, you either, you either pick on something or you go, wow, God did that. Others asked how it was possible for a sinful man to perform such a miracle. It was obvious to them that only God could have done such a wonder. So a debate broke out between the two sides. And at some point, they turned to the man and asked what he thought of Jesus. And he said Jesus was a prophet, which at that point in time was the best he knew. Then it appears that members of the Sanhedrin became involved. That's the top religious court. And so you've got Pharisees in it. You've got, uh, you've got a, uh, the Levitical uh, priestly group. You've got, you've got the high priest and his, his henchmen. I mean, it's, his is a very debauched group. Now, I mean, the others aren't. The others aren't. But boy, the, the high priest is a sickle. And um, he is. They bought, they bought the position from the Roman government. It's, it's fraud. This is like the, oh, what, the, what are those families in, in Italy that used to buy, buy popes' positions and all? It's the same kind of thing going on, yeah. Uh, so it appears, that John refers to the Jews, in, which was a term used especially for those religious leaders. They summoned his parents to what by now had become a formal hearing. They asked them to testify if this man indeed was their son. Was the man who, this the man who had been born blind? Yes or no? They were very careful in their answer. Uh, not to, uh, they did not want to say anything more than was absolutely necessary. Because these leaders had publicly threatened to make an outcast of anyone who dared to say that Jesus was the Messiah. They did, they did admit, this is our son, but were careful to say, we don't know how his eyes were opened. And then, essentially, they backed away and left their son on his own. They said, he's an adult. Ask him. They had identified him as their son and acknowledged that he could see, but they refused to comment on Jesus. Finally, the leaders summoned the man himself. They didn't start the examination by asking what happened, because in their minds, the verdict was already decided. They started by challenging him to renounce Jesus as a sinner. Now picture yourself for a second. You are, the, you are the poorest of the poor. You're a beggar. You've been blind. I mean, who knows what kind of dirty condition, you know, your body and everything else. I mean, by now, maybe I'm sure he's, had, he's cleaned up some. But, but this is a difficult role you've been in all these years. And here you have now the top echelon in all their robes, in all their power. I mean, have you ever been, you, you, we, can, we can talk about it uh, generically, but when you get called into court, 
You get in a police station, you get in a situation where there's real power, it's intimidating. It is just plain intimidating. So this man's in front of that kind of, of people, and they're grilling him. And now they're saying to him, this man's a sinner. Renounce him. Lot of pressure on this man. And these are his religious leaders. These are his pastors, as it were. These are his spiritual covering, who he's supposed to follow and trust and let lead him to the throne of God. All right, so they're telling him this. They wanted him to testify that Jesus had nothing to do with the miracle. That God had done a miracle in spite of that wicked man. They may have suggested that, that God was using Jesus to test Israel, to see whether the nation would follow after a false teacher. The man refused to cooperate. He said he didn't know if Jesus was a sinner, but he did know he could see. And then probably with the hope of discovering some sort of wrong action which Jesus had done during the miracle that might indicate demonic involvement, they asked him again to tell them how did he receive his sight. At some point during the questioning, the man made a decision. To put himself at risk, he recognized the ugly spirit in which this investigation was being conducted and decided to stand with Jesus. Do you see that? I think that loyalty, you and I can all say we're loyal, but when push comes to shove, when the pressure's there, in the moment of crisis is when you find out whether you are or not. And some of us will think we're not, and in the moment of crisis, by George, we are. <laughs> You'll do stuff like, I can't believe I'm doing this. You know? But you are. It was, it was in there way deeper. Uh, have, and have you been in situations where there suddenly was a crisis and you rose up with a courage or, with a, or, or to rescue your family or to step into a situation and you didn't even think about it? It didn't pass through the brain. It was just like one of those knee-jerk things, you know. It's just like, you, you, here, here I go. I can't believe I'm doing this. That's loyalty. You have a deep vow that was formed in you, a bond that was taken. Something happened a long time ago, and you don't even necessarily know it. Other people will say, oh, I'm so loyal, so loyal, so loyal. When that pressure's there, when the crisis is there, they don't do that. They respond very differently. I think we should choose to be loyal, but I think real loyalty is, is in, uncovered in the moment. Um, my wife tells this story. When she was, when she was young, they were at school or whatever, and she has two older brothers, but she's got a, she's got a, a little brother. Uh, I say that, you know. Um, and he was being bullied by a big kid. And uh, Mary says the kid was probably as big as she was. And she, he, she came across this where he's, she, he's bullying uh, David. She didn't think twice. She went right after that big kid. And she says, you leave my brother alone. Bang. And she just nailed him in the shins. You know, he's, ah, he's down. Uh, that's, that's, a that's a tough woman. <laughs> what that is, is the mother bear. And, and you, you women know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you touch my kids. And, and it doesn't matter if I'm dealing with a 300-pound intruder. I'm going after him. That's loyalty. It's one of the deep, beautiful things that God puts in life. It, it's, it's, it's that loyal thing. It's the thing where, where a father won't think twice about donating a kidney for his son. It was not even a question. Of course I will. It's, it's, it's we're one. This is my flesh and blood. We do what we do. It's not an issue. It's that deep, beautiful loyalty that's in there. And it's exposed in those moments when, when the pressure is on. And in this man, I don't, I don't think he... Well, here's a guy who's not seen all of his life. P picture this. He goes to the pool of Siloam with mud on his eyes, clay. And he goes and he bathes his eyes. He may have gone... It's a big pool, by the way. It's still there. Um, and it's you know, the five steps down. Every, everything is there. And part of it is excavated. The other part is, is a lot of family won't let them do it. But it's a big, ex, a big pool. And he goes down. And imagine what it was like for him to be washing this clay off his eyes. And suddenly, bursts of light 
breaking through. He's never seen light before, ever, of any kind. All of a sudden, bursts of light are coming through. And then the water washes away. <sighs> Looking around at a world he's never, ever seen. He doesn't know who any, he knows their net, he knows their voices, but he doesn't even know who he's looking at. Something happened of gratitude in him. I don't know who that was, but I love him. I will, he, he just, and then when the pressure came on to renounce him, he doesn't know that he is, he doesn't know, he thinks he's a prophet. That's the best he can come up with. Maybe he's Elijah, Elijah sort of guy who can do stuff. But he's thinking, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not backing away from him. I will stand with him under the pressure. At some point during the questioning, the man made a decision to put himself at risk. He recognized the ugly spirit in which the investigation was being conducted and decided to stand with Jesus. He aggressively turned on his interrogators and said, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? I mean, this is, all varnish is off. Do you also, like I have, and that also is, is totally there, do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> That made them furious. And they began to insult him. And they said, you're his disciple. But we're Moses' disciples. And we know God spoke to Moses. We don't know where this he's from or what power he uses. At that point, the man dropped all caution and openly challenged the foolishness of their reasoning. He said, well, this is a marvelous thing. That you don't know whether he's from God or not. You great scholars and discerners of the word. But he opened my eyes and we know God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone fears God and does his will, he hears that person. From the beginning of human history. He says from the beginning of this age in which we're living. In other, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. They couldn't argue with his logic, so they turned their attack on the man himself. And as they did so, their deep religious beliefs were exposed. Let me stop for a second. Notice what they just did. The man is beating them in the game of ideas. He's right. He's right. And they know it. So what do they do? They don't go, ah, you're right. They don't answer his argument. They attack him personally. This is, there's a term for this. It's called ad hominem. And, it, and it's what you do is you stop dealing with the issue and you attack the man. That's what the Latin means. You attack the man. This is how our politics right now is being conducted. And it is shameful. We have dropped from a discussion of ideas to a simply ad hominem attacks constantly. Just slander your opponent, cut him down at the knees, and don't, don't answer the issues. Isn't it sad? It, it's really a, a sign of, of, of real trouble in our culture that we can't have a discussion of ideas. We have to attack the individual. As they did so, their deep religious beliefs were exposed. Someone must have sinned for a baby to be born blind. So they said you were born completely, in that words there, wholly in sin. Do you teach us? And then John says they cast him out, which was a very serious punishment. Until he repented, he would be treated like a dead man. Allowed only to buy the bare necessities of life. This is not a small matter. Don't buzz by that word. They cast him out. It means they put him out of fellowship. He is excommunicated. He is, he is now a pariah. His, his, to, he's dead to his family. He's dead to the neighbors. No one will say hello to him. He's not welcome in the synagogue. He's not welcome in any gatherings. He is, he, he is now pushed out. And he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, in a shameful condition. They will allow him to go into the market and buy the bare necessities of life because this isn't an execution sentence, but it is, an ex, it is excommunication. And until that man renounces Jesus, he's out. He has been put out. 
When Jesus heard what they did to him, he knew the man had refused to betray him. So he found him and asked a very spiritual question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Picture this. I don't know where Jesus is at this point, but word comes to him and they said, did you hear what they did to the man? Uh, you healed? What? They cast him out. What did Jesus do? My thought is, <laughs> yes. What did it mean? He didn't renounce me in court. To get thrown out, he had the loyalty to stand with me and to own me in front of those who hate me. So what did he do? Let's go find him. That's the kind of person. That, see, that's exactly what I think the father showed Jesus when he, was, when, when he was stopped to see him. That something deep had been worked in this man. He was ready, he, not just for some kind of mild thing. This man was ready to become a disciple. I'll, I'll say more about that in a second. He came to him and he found him and asked a very spiritual question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man replied, who is he, sir, so that I may believe in him? Then Jesus revealed that he was that amazing person Daniel saw in a vision to whom God gave the authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. You remember the picture? Someone, someone looking like a son of man comes in. Daniel sees this in the very throne room of heaven, goes up to the ancient of days, sitting on his great throne, the father. And to him, to this one who looks like a human being, stepping up before him is given dominion and authority over every nation, tongue, and tribe forever and ever. Who's that? It's the Son of God who's become one of us. That's who it is. And so Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He who you've seen with those new eyes of yours. And who's here now talking to you. It's me. I believe. And, he, and what happens? And the man confessed, read this, I believe and worshipped him. Listen, John is a, is, a, is, a, is a deeply committed Jew. You do not ever say he worshipped Jesus. And that's the word. That's exactly what the word means. It's all the word means. He worshipped him. He knows exactly what he's saying. Jesus is the divine son of God who's become a man. He is not just a man. It would never have been said of a man. How people responded. The man's neighbors suspected fraud. The Pharisees labeled Jesus a sinner. The religious leaders threatened to expel him. And his parents were disloyal to him. But the man himself chose to be loyal to Jesus. And when Jesus heard that, he found him and gave him eternal life. We have just watched a man refuse to denounce the person who gave him the gift of sight. Even when he didn't really know who Jesus was, he became loyal to him. He would not separate himself from someone so kind. He would not deny a miracle so clearly from God. He would not call what was good evil even if it meant losing everything. That miracle revealed a heart not only ready to believe, but ready to stand beside Jesus and bear his reproach, ready to be his disciple. The author of Hebrews describes such loyalty this way. Would you read this with me out loud? For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. <laughs> Hebrews is, 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 is written, obviously, by a Levite. Paul is a Pharisee. Paul did not write Hebrews. I won't go into who I think did. <laughs> but he was a Levite. Everything in it is Levitical. 
meaning about the tabernacle, about the worship life of Israel. It's, Jesus is being seen that way. And so the, here we have the author of Hebrews, and he's saying to us, when, when in the tabernacle or the temple you had sin offerings, the animals uh, is opened up, and out of it is taken the liver and the, uh, the various things of the, of the fat and all of that, and that's put on the altar and burned. But the carcass is actually taken outside the entire camp. And so we're really thinking tabernacle here of Israel out in the wilderness. Goes outside the camp to a refuse dump. Now it's a holy refuse dump, it, 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 but it's a refuse dump. And the carcass is burned outside the camp because, as, as, in that way. And he's likening Jesus to that. And he's saying, Jesus... Just as that carcass was taken and burned outside the camp, our Lord was crucified, and notice he changed the word, outside the gate. What gate? The gate in Jerusalem. Jesus was shamefully taken and crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, out in reproach, out in shame, out as a sinner. And he says, therefore... Since the one who's given his life for us has, has been crucified outside the gate, let us go out to him and stand with him and bear his reproach. What's the word for that? Loyalty. Let's not be ashamed of him. That was being written to, to the Jewish community particularly, to the churches in Rome. And there was a great deal of pressure right then. This was just before, uh, while all of the chaos is going on in Israel with the, uh, with, uh, from 66 to 70 AD, with the great revolution and all that's going to end up in just a massacre. All that's going on in, in, in Israel. So there's great loyalty to, to Israel and great turmoil. And people, the, the, the Jewish believers in Christ in, in Rome are under tremendous pressure. Their families are abandoning them. They can't get work from any of the, any of the family lines or, 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 or anyone from the synagogues. They are undoubtedly wives are being divorced for their faith. Husbands are being divorced for their faith. It says they are having their homes seized. Um, people are actually seizing their houses and their property. Uh, they are being persecuted, pushed into poverty. And so wouldn't the question go through your mind? Look, I was Jewish for so many, for, our people have been Jewish for thousands of years. And we didn't have Jesus. It, wouldn't it be all right to just put Jesus aside and go back to being Jewish? I mean, it was good for a long time, wasn't it? I mean, is this all right? And by doing that, of course, I'm no longer persecuted. I can get this thing off my back. Can I leave him over here? I'm, he's a great guy. But can I leave him? And the answer of Hebrews is having once tasted the powers of the age to come, meaning the baptism of the Holy Spirit, having known, having known the good word of life, of, of seeing who he is, if you have the heart, if you could trample under your feet the blood of the Son and call it unclean, he said, you will so have hardened yourself, you can't repent. No, you can't shelf Jesus. Come outside the camp with us and bear his reproach. Be loyal to him. The frustration of being blind must have been miserable at times. But apparently in that man, suffering deepened his longing for eternal life. Suffering causes some people to grow bitter toward God but drives others to cling more firmly to his promises of a future without suffering. Do you see that? I think all those years, as terrible as they were, of his blindness, in a sense, just took his grip off the world. The world was a bitter place. The world was a painful place. It was a shameful place. He was seen as a horrible sinner or his parents. Something was wrong. I mean, he was just not welcomed here. This wasn't a good place. And in the process, you can either get bitter... And hate God and everybody. Or this man began to long for a city not made with hands. He began to long for eternal life. That's what God had been doing in him. So when Jesus comes along and he sees the light. 
No way he's backing up and, and, and not standing with that one who gave him light. What powerful work has God, of God has God done in your life? Now just stop and think. What has he done in you? What has he done that you know he did? I mean, if I were to ask, I would think everybody in here would have situations where you can point and say, well, you know, in my life, I know God did that for me. I know he was there for me in that moment. There's no question about that. Have people criticized you or mocked you for it? Do you live among neighbors, religious leaders, parents, family members, even courts or employers who demand that you renounce what God has done in your life? If so, have you remained loyal? Or have you been tempted to cave in to the pressure? Loyalty to Jesus is a choice, a really deep choice, that may well cost a true disciple everything. But it provides the only foundation upon which a true, lasting relationship with Jesus can be built. Didn't he say, if anyone comes after me, he must take up his cross and follow me outside the camp? I was reflecting on my own answer to the questions I just asked you. And I've had the Lord do a lot of things for me, but nothing... Nothing more precious and nothing more, more foundational to me than when I was 12 years old and I met him. And I met the Lord in a very awkward way. In fact, I have a, it's hard to this, explain it. I didn't go through the normal thing in a sense. I got dragged into a room where there was a lot of power. A little room with maybe 10 people. But they were, they were these charismatic Episcopalians. And, uh, and nobody's paying any attention to me but in the course of it, the power of God hit me and I literally fainted and came to and my tongue's moving and I'm, I'm just electrified. I, I, it's, I'm like that beggar. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't even looking for him. I'm just sitting there. And Jesus came and boom. And when I came to, I remember that 12-year-old mind saying, well, it's God. You know, and, and then I thought, there's angels and they're moving my tongue. I have no idea why I thought that. I don't know if I even knew about, I mean, you know, it was moving my tongue. And, 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 and then I began to wrestle with God for weeks. I met the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the baptism uh, or something of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can argue with, I've had people to question whether I was saved. I don't, uh, I just know he came. And I've had over the years, it's been interesting, pressure time and again to renounce that and say, well, look at just, just pray the sinner's prayer. Just can't we go back to just the, the, the what, can you get rid of this Pentecostal stuff, this speaking in tongues stuff, this healing and, you know, could, could you just get kind of that awkward things and off? And when I, when, when I was um, looking to where to minister, uh, I, I visited uh, a number of, of denominations and on uh, uh, several occasions, I think about three occasions, the, the interview went like this. A young man, uh, we, we like you. Um, you've got a good education. We've got a good background. We like your heart. Um, we just have one, one issue here, and it's this speaking in tongues thing. Um, if you would agree with us to kind of keep it at home and, and promise us that you'll not preach it or teach it in our churches, we will welcome you in as a pastor. I was told that three times by, by large American denominations. And there I am, you know, I'm a young man. I, 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 I'm trying to follow the Lord's calling. But they're asking me to step away from what brought me. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I was, I, we, we were a mess. I don't think I'd have ended up a Christian. We weren't. And I sure wasn't. He came to me. So do I take what he did that moment he came to me? And do I sort of put it aside and sanitize my theology so that I can please people? Even now, the pressure continues to come. We've been called the emotional church. We've had all kinds of names called us because we worship and pray and minister the way we do. It's funny to some people. 
It's silly to some people. I've lived with that all my life. I've lived with that all my life. What has he done in you that you wouldn't back away from? So I want you to know when it comes to this, I will go with the Lord who met me regardless of what, and if no one goes with me. This is not negotiable for me. I am loyal to the one. You, you had a boy who had no father, who had no family to speak of, who was lonely, you had a, who, was, who, was, who was miserable, and you came and you stopped and you touched him. If you think I deny him, you got another thing coming. I'm loyal to him, and so are you. Thank you. I think if you look inside where he met you, you have the same thing. Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Lord Jesus, how much we love you. And how much you have loved us. I think all of us would come and say, you found us. We didn't find you. We were there by the roadside in the dust. And you and your love, one way or another, reached out to us. You tricked us. You, <laughs> you did all kinds of things to get us. You scared the liver out of some of us. Hallelujah. And you brought us to yourself. And we have found one who's loved us. And we would be like that wonderful man. Someday we'll know his name. His loyalty, his ferocity to, to not deny the one who gave him eyes to believe and to follow, to stand against all the pressures and to be loyal. Lord, may that be the quality of us. Loyal to you and loyal to the ones you have put in our lives. May deep loyalty be worked in us, Lord. And in that loyalty, may great love grow, safety and healing. May life come forward as husbands are loyal to their families and wives loyal to their families. As, as those who are single are loyal to you and their purity and loyal to the community of God's people to whom you give them. Lord, make us loyal to each other. Loyal even as a church. Un imperfect people with all kinds of ideas and developmental stages, loyal to each other because of you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us to one another. We come out to you and stand outside the camp and bear your reproach. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray it. If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.